Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Pat McDowell, and committed to bringing you ideas and resources that will build your professional development plan. Thanks for listening. If you want to be a nonprofit leader or maybe more effective in the role you're in now, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would, do me a favor, find that share button. Usually it's within the episode graphic. Uh, it includes three dots. Click on it and you can share this episode with one other person so we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. I had a fantastic conversation this episode with Manuel Campbell. He's a founder and nonprofit CEO who is doing wonderful work in his community. And for our purposes, he also brings the added benefit of a thoughtful and practical approach to nonprofit leadership. And I know you'll appreciate it. You know, Manuel talks about how he first conceived of the idea that became Aspire Community Capital. And more importantly, he shares specific steps he took before it even got started to assure success. And these steps are certainly relevant to those of you who are also in a startup mode, but also for those of you who are established nonprofit leaders, because we're talking about some of your favorites, strategic planning, staff and board development, and of course, fundraising. Lots to check out in the show notes. This is episode number 130. Just go to the podcast page on patentmcdowell.com website. You can scroll down and see any of the 129 previous episodes in addition to manuals. Or you can go to the news page at patmcdowell.com and you can see the full web feature, which includes all of the resources Manuel and I discuss, as well as more information on the great work he's doing through Aspire Community Capital. And speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. We're on all the social media platforms, including YouTube. Check us out there if that's where you like to consume your podcast content and get on our email list. You go to the bottom of the homepage and you'll see a free resources link and that's where you can put in your email address and you won't miss anything, including weekly episodes like this one. You know, also on the bottom of the homepage, there's a button that says simply want to chat and we'd be happy to schedule a conversation with you to talk about your nonprofit organization or perhaps your journey to nonprofit leadership. We can talk about coaching, training, or a unique mastermind program we have coming up again in the spring of 2022. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Manuel Campbell. Manuel, thank you for joining me on the path. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here, Patton, and I'm thankful for the opportunity, and, and I'm humbled that you would give me this platform to share some insights regarding my experience with Aspire, as well as my experience through life in terms of how I arrived where I am now with leading a nonprofit organization that has the depth and breadth of Aspire Community Capital. Uh, you, you said it beautifully, Manuel. That's exactly why I'm excited about this conversation uh, because Aspire is a fascinating organization. You've created mm -hmm. a dynamic nonprofit that's really doing great work. And of course, I know our listeners are eager to learn from you in terms of how did you get on this path to nonprofit leadership and mm -hmm. what lessons mm -hmm. that you might be willing to share. And let's start with that. Manuel, you could have gone in any number of directions professionally. So why'd you choose mm -hmm. nonprofit leadership? Well, you know, Pat, both my parents are entrepreneurs. And uh, as I went along my professional journey and, and you know, kind of navigated the experiences that I was having, one of the things that I knew that I always had a passion for was both giving back to the community, but just as important, uh, having growing up with two entrepreneurs, I kind of embraced the entrepreneurship experience and lifestyle. And uh, my professional aspirations kind of guided me along the same path with respect to working in banking and really helping small businesses. And uh, when I was started thinking about, you know, as we always say, what do I do, want to do when I grow up? I right. thought it was imperative for me to marry both my work experience, my passion for entrepreneurship, as well as uh, meeting a community need that I had observed. And so I thought about, you know, exactly how to do that, did some brainstorming and a lot of research and due diligence and realized that there was a need that was being unmet in our community. 
related to serving small business owners that had gone through very similar experiences as my mother and father had done as they were launching and trying to grow their business. And that's what really laid the foundation for me starting Aspire Community Capital. That's fantastic. And love how you brought kind of your own passion, your family history, uh, right. and, and something that you knew well. Um, and, and I also want to underline, frankly, the research, because I think you and I both know nonprofit enthusiasts maybe jump at an opportunity, but without doing their homework, right? And so clearly you did your homework on this topic, correct? Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, as we kind of talk through this conversation, you know, I think it's imperative to always come back to data. Because ultimately, when we think about how are we as nonprofit organizations funded and what our fund is really looking for, they're looking for a combination of a narrative that helps meet a social need, but also data to support the need for the services and or programming that you're offering. And I found that to be in, in, in important as well as uh, significant to our success as an organization, both from a fundraising perspective, but just as importantly as kind of meeting the needs and defining the goals and the aspirations of the organization. I love that you raised that point too, Manuel, because I use that term in some of my coaching. All nonprofit leaders need to have the financial acumen. They may have passion for the program, but you're running a business. And in your case, Obviously, there's a complexity to the financial model that you're providing those that you serve. In fact, let's let's start with that, Manuel. What exactly is Aspire Community Capital? And and, and Pat, now definitely lead and certainly address your question because you know I think it's 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 a combination of understanding the data and understanding the narrative. But you know what we do at Aspire Community Capital is we provide both uh, training, coaching, as well as access to capital resources for underserved communities. And as I say, uh, that's a big part of what we do. And we have programming that supports that, which is really a three-pronged approach. Well, we provide a community business academy, which offers 12 weeks of entrepreneurship training, really around teaching our program participants the essential skills that they need to run successful small businesses. And once those participants complete our community business academy, then they move into our business accelerated services, where they receive one-on-one coaching, in addition to access to our masterminding series. And what we've realized is that not only do our participants uh, benefit from our, from our subject matter experts who are our coaches, but we've also instituted a masterminding concept because we realized that just as important as it is for them to learn from our subject matter experts, it's just as important for them to learn from each other. And a lot of times in those masterminding sessions, they have an opportunity to bounce various ideas off of one another and glean insight from their own personal experience and sharing that experience with others. And last but certainly not least is our access to capital program, where we provide microfinancing for small businesses that come through our respective programs. And so we kind of provide a holistic approach, if you will, to small business development, from training to coaching to access to capital resources that we've identified as being imperative to the growth and sustainability and economic development of small businesses and underserved communities. Well put, Manuel. You and I are both fans of the masterminding concept because you're right. I think many of, uh, well, any sector benefits from that peer interaction. You know, right? It's one thing to go to a coaching session or a webinar or anything else, but you've created an environment for these startup entrepreneurs to really achieve upward mobility, which I guess is a phrase thrown around a lot, but Manuel, is that fair that, that Aspire Community Capital really is working toward providing upward mobility? And Pat, I think that that's a, that's a great next step because what I just described is the programs and services that we offer. And within that concept is really the vision of what Aspire is really all about. So as I like to share with people, you know, the Community Business Academy, the Business Accelerated Services, and our Access to Capital program, that's what we do on a daily basis. But who we really are is an economic and personal development organization that focuses on providing mobility and wealth creation for underserved communities. So we see entrepreneurship as just a pathway to upward mobility. And it's a tool that we use to kind of focus on and cultivate wealth creation in underserved communities. Yeah, it's, it's important. 
and I think often misunderstood uh, about some of those lack of mobility options that you're now providing. And, and I guess, Manuel, back when you were doing your homework, was your expectation <laughs> that, well, maybe there has to be other programs around that would provide this? Or how did you determine what you knew was a good idea, but how did you right. decide to start Aspire? Well, you know, one of the things that I think is imperative and in the essence, the core of what we do as uh, nonprofit leaders is really is really relational. So relationships are imperative to not only the delivery of our program, but the, the due diligence that's necessary to understand what needs are we trying to meet. So a lot of the research on the front end was really about establishing relationships and understanding what was already existing in the marketplace where a lot of modern income entrepreneurs were being served. And then to kind of do and bring in subject matter experts who could help us understand the dynamics of the community that we were, we were about to engage with, as well as to understand the needs of the businesses in those communities. And we had the luxury of bringing on a PMA consulting firm to do some due diligence for us in collaboration with us. And I think that that, that level of research was just as important, you know, Patton, when we started having this conversation on the front end, and, and your team did a great focus group for us to really help us understand the dynamics and the relationship between some of the other programs that were already in place here in Charlotte and how we might fit in that ecosystem that would help us define and be clear about what our niche really was and the people that we really were trying to serve. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Manuel. It was a pleasure working with you. And again, I, I, I applaud the due diligence you did because you and I both have seen well-intentioned prospective nonprofit leaders oh, yes. who just, they're committed to a call, so they just want to start their own nonprofit. When in fact, right. there's, you know, eight other ones in town already <laughs> doing that same service. But in right. your case, you found and, and felt like there was a genuine need and a gap, frankly, in that ecosystem of the folks you're trying to serve, right? Absolutely. And, and I think that, uh, you know, my timing, you know, I, I, I don't know if there's a such thing as as that could have been a more or more perfect timing for what the services were that we were providing. But I think people have to always be cognizant of the time and the social climate and the economic climate in which they are launching their nonprofits. Because I think that that is one of those exogenous variables that you just have to be cognizant of that will impact you, in particular, your ability to not only deliver your services, but to raise the necessary funds and capital you're going to need to, to sustain your small uh, nonprofit organization. Right. And, and you did such a good job because because you had done your homework when funders came to you early on and said, all right, why do we need this organization? You were able to make the point with data and not only the passion you brought, but the information, right? right? And I think I had to make you feel more comfortable getting started. Uh, absolutely. And, 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 and to be clear about it, not only do we have the data and I would say kind of the, the, the relational components that I thought were essential, but just as importantly, we were trying to practice what we were preaching to our program participants. We wanted to make sure that we had the necessary infrastructure in place so that when we were asked about our accounting system or uh, how we were going to process different information or how were we going to collect data, Right. Uh, which I which is an, an, an important dynamic of running a nonprofit that I think a lot of smaller nonprofits often struggle with is what's going to be their data collection and reporting process. And given that we knew how imperative and important it was for uh, our program participants to ensure that they have the necessary infrastructure, we ourselves had to ensure that we had the necessary infrastructure to be able to track all that information and then be able to convey it in such a way that it is supported the narrative and met the needs of the communities that we were serving. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. You had to literally model the entrepreneurial right. spirit that you were teaching, <laughs> right? Hard to teach Absolutely. if you can't literally say you're doing the right thing yourself. Absolutely. Well, it, and I wondered because, again, you did your homework. Lots of lessons here for our listeners. Doing your homework thoroughly, preparing the infrastructure and the plan, but as you think back to when you literally got started, what were some of the challenges? Were there things now that you look back that maybe would help someone else thinking about a similar path? Uh, I think it's twofold. I think one, in order to do this type of work in the community, in particular from a grassroots standpoint, you have to establish credibility in the community. 
And credibility can be established through assortment of ways, through you know, the establishment of your board, um, other established relationships that you might have in the community. Um, you got to establish credibility with the funders. You got to establish credit credibility with the people you are serving. You got to establish credibility with the staff or contractors that you bring in that you can deliver and perform and operate a business, even though it's a nonprofit business. But as you stated before, Patton, a business nevertheless, in such a way that's not only sustainable, but impactful. And I think that that's one of the things that we were able to successfully do in the short ramp of time that we've been providing our services in the Charlotte community. And the second thing that I would add that I think was of paramount importance for us is you need a community advocate. You need someone who has an established reputation in the community that will stand up and champion the services and the programs that you provide through your nonprofit. And I was able to successfully establish such a relationship even before I thought about starting a nonprofit uh, with a gentleman who eventually became the chairman of my board. And I think that that type of relationship and having that type of community advocate with an established uh, uh, relationships in the community gave us that instant credibility that I think went a long way in our ability to continue to provide services and offer programs and fundraise and build out the infrastructure that we found to be significant to our success. Hey, I remember, Manuel, you were very intentional and quite effective in, in identifying, I guess, a community leader list. And in fact, yeah, several of them now have become board members and champions for Aspire. Do you recall how you did that? I mean, was it literally just kind of you brainstormed a list of the top 20 kind of community leaders that you just one by one worked your way through? And, and, and Pat, I would suggest that, you know, it's one of those things where they say, you know, make a friend before you need a friend because yeah. you want it to evolve organically. Because as I said, a big part of, of, of the work that we do is relational. And I probably started thinking about Aspire and what it will look like and, 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 and the culture that I wanted to create with Aspire two to three years before even uh, getting my 501c3 certification. And so just kind of going through that process and really understanding the culture that I wanted to create, the impact that I know knew that Aspire could have led me to the type of uh, people who I thought and knew that could help me along my path. And I think that that was just as essential in terms of having those relationships develop organically and then proposing how they felt about this idea that I might have or that I had at the time and how they may contribute. And I kind of let them share with me what role, if any, they wanted to play in the organization. Well, it's such a great strategy. And I'll use a variation of your phrase. Yeah, you you be, you were a friend before you needed a friend. Exactly. And it exactly. paid off, right? And, and in fact, Ronnie Bryant, your board chair, has been a guest on this podcast and a wonderful example, right, of someone you sold on this concept. And now he is a true believer. Right. And if you know anything about Ronnie, it's hard to sell him on anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know that the, 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 in all honesty, Patton, it was tremendously rewarding to just uh, be able to pick Ronnie's brain and have him provide me with the guidance and the insight that he was able to bring, uh, not only to me personally as a CEO, but just to the organization and the operations. And I think there again is where having someone that you are closely aligned with, who you can bounce ideas off, who really understand the nonprofit space. Because what I've realized is that there are a lot of nonprofit leaders who come into the nonprofit space, kind of like me, with very little nonprofit experience. Right. And understanding the dynamics and the nuances between, you know, running a nonprofit organization and working in a for-profit um, industry is very different. And so there's just some natural nuances and some variations and and, and what I would say, what I would say, nuggets of insight that you need to really be able to successfully uh, launch and, and sustain a nonprofit. Well, and it's important to underscore that you had these important conversations before you even yes. started the 501c3, which I think is vital, uh, which allowed you to kind of create a proof of concept, right? And get that feedback, which sharpened your ability to run the organization once it was official. And, and, and Pat, I don't want to be misleading because I'm still learning. Sure, this, this, sure. This is an ongoing process. Uh, but absolutely, you know, I think having 
those subject matter experts and being able to glean insight from on the various topics from really understanding nonprofit accounting, which I know that you are aware of is, is a is a, a monster and a unique idea unto itself. <laughs> Indeed. Um, um, the reality of, you know, especially grassroots nonprofits uh, where we have to literally raise the money that that will pay our salaries. Yes. And so and so, yes. you know, being able to really understand those dynamics and, and really be able to embrace them. And, and be sure that they're really consistent with who you are and, and, and your character, because there is a lot of um, engagement. As I said before, there's a lot of relationships that have to be cultivated. And there's a lot of trust that people have to have in you and you have to have in other people to really have an impactful organization. Did you find talking to other nonprofit leaders helped at that stage or did you have such a unique kind of design and organization that you really had to kind of figure that out on your own? Um, I absolutely believe that talking to other nonprofit leaders helped. As a matter of fact, I would strongly recommend that anybody who's considering getting in the nonprofit space or certainly thinking about launching a nonprofit organization, please serve on some nonprofit boards first. Really try to get as much of an understanding of how a nonprofit operates from as a board member's perspective, because certainly someone who's launching a nonprofit, you have to understand how your quote unquote bosses think and what expectations they have of you. And, 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 and again, um, from anything from the basic understanding of Robert's Rules of Order. You know, I had to go back and read. I had saw the book and looked at it a couple of times, Patton. <laughs> never but, you had know, to I had attention. to go back. I never had to pay attention. You know, what's emotion again? And, and how <laughs> right, do I make right. this? And, 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 and what have you. But I think it's those type of things that, that are important and you don't really think about when you're launching a nonprofit that I had to go back and really learn and, and, and really become a part of how I operate. It's great advice. And I, you and I both have nonprofit leader friends who wrestle with their board challenged one way or another. And I think your advice is spot on. You know, have you served as a board member? Clearly, right. there's an organization that you volunteer for now that probably could use a board member. And so, Manuel, it sounds like you were very intentional about serving in that role, which now helps you better deal with your board. It helps me not only better deal, but better understand my board, to better prepare for my board, and one of the things that, that I've realized in terms of doing, you know, now move in as a nonprofit CEO, uh, um, really understanding the relationship between my role and the board's role and the governance that the board provides and the role of me and the staff in supporting the vision of not only mine, but also the board's vision and making sure that we can execute. And one of the things that I'll say, you know, and I know I'm certain Ronnie kind of spoke about this in, in his discussion with you, is that the main reason why CEOs and executive directors are not as successful as they possibly could be is not always due to their programming or services they provide, but typically it's a reflection of a lack of relationship and understanding of the board of directors. Yes. And I guess you have been very intentional in cultivating that. And we'll talk about that as a key, I guess, to nonprofit leadership. But I, I take it you mean it's not just managing the meetings, but you're intentional about relationships with each individual board member. Absolutely. And as they say, there's the board meeting that takes place. And then there's the meeting after the board meeting where all the decisions are made. <laughs> exactly. And so, and so and so you have to be intertwined and your board has to feel a certain level of comfort with you. And I say that both professionally as well as personally, so that they can come to you and share with you anything that they're having some challenges with, so that they discuss them with you. You can talk through them with the board members or board member and, and come up with a collective understanding of how we may address whatever the challenge may be or the issue they may be having. Let's talk about the, the rhythm, I guess, of that board relationship. So you and your board chair, you have meetings outside of the full board meetings or what what kind of rhythm and routine do you have as far as it in, you know engaging the board and, and I think it varies from organization to organization and board size to board size uh, for me what has been what has worked is I certainly try to keep my board under 20 uh, members and what that allows me to do is to really kind of establish uh, as you talked about Patton a rhythm of, of how often I can reach out to them 
and, and the frequency in which I can follow up with them and provide them with the guidance that I think that they they need from time to time. Right. So one of the requirements that we have is that every board member has to also serve on a committee. And it's in the committee environments, which are a lot smaller groups where I have the opportunity to engage with them on a more personal level and get to know them more personally, even though simultaneously we're taught we're taking care of, you know, organizational business, but it just allows for more of a one on one engagement and relationship cultivation and development than when we are in a much larger groups and uh, that to be very helpful. And I would even encourage anyone in this space to, you know, get a routine in terms of meeting with your board members outside of work, be yes. it for, for breakfast or for lunch or after work or what have you. Because, again, you want that personal relationship, which I found to be just as important as having them on the team and in the board meetings. Such good advice. And I agree with you. I think the best practice organizations and boards have that interaction outside of the meetings. If you and your board only engage at that regular meeting, yes, you're missing out, right? The the full value of their contribution. And and you know, I found that having my board be actively engaged in our programming, and, and for me, I'm blessed to have programming that does allow for board engagement. I know yeah. some nonprofit organizations just doesn't work that way, but the type of offering that we have, uh, our board members can come and participate in some of our coaching sessions and our masterminding, as well as our community business academy modules. So having them come into the environment and really understand intimately the services that we provide and get to see and engage with our program participants, I think goes a long way in them feeling a part of the organization beyond just being a board member. Manuel, how do you stay organized? You got a lot of balls in the air, like many nonprofit leaders, you, you're doing a lot <laughs> with a little in terms of resources, staff and whatnot. I wonder, are there certain tips or tricks you found to help you stay organized? I would say, you know, one of the things that was advised that, that I was advised of very early in the process is to really understand and do an assessment of myself and really identify what are the things that I do well and what are the things that I probably could improve on and what are the things that I probably just need to outsource and, and bring in other people to assist me with. Yep. And I was very cognizant of that when launching Aspire. And really kind of thought about as I brought on contractors and added people to the staff, how would that look and what, and what should those people, what skill sets should those people have? And I think that as, a, as a, a leader of any organization, a big part of what you do is really understanding relationships, but just as importantly, understanding personalities and being able to manage those personalities to help you achieve your goal. And so in, in my thinking, as I brought on additional team members, um, I wanted people who really were intimately involved and, and really passionate about the services and the programs and the mission of the organization, but just as importantly, fit me with respect to what it was that I needed and what it is that I knew that I lacked as a leader. And I've been able to find a great group of, of people to come on the team, and we do a really great job of balancing each other out. And I think that that has allowed me to be, you know, I, if the question is, how do I remain organized? Pat and I would say I'm still trying to get organized. But, yes. but, 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 but I do have a great group of people who work with me to, to stay as organized as we can at this point, given the growth as well as the, uh, and I say growth not only in programming, but the build out of our staff and our team. And I think that having those same type of relationships that I have with my board, I desire to have with my staff members, because I think that we want a culture that facilitates one that's supportive and, 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 and engaging and opportunistic, as well as thoughtful with respect to how do we deliver the services that we do in the most effective way. Well, clearly, having met uh, several of your team members, you have done exactly that. And I applaud the self-awareness. Because I think there yes. is sometimes almost a martyrdom that nonprofit leaders take on. In other words, I have to do everything. You know, I don't want to spend resources on anything else. And I'm just going to stay up all night and get it done. And it sounds like, though, you were very intentional. Like, hey, I need to put myself in the best position to succeed. And that obviously yes. allows me to bring in people who can work in areas that perhaps, you know, you're not as uh, proficient. And, and Pat, I would even say, take it a step further and even suggest that as I even looked at and kind of thought through, 
you know, with the skill sets that we lack on the team. And, and if I were a participant in my own CBA class, what advice would I give myself? Yes. And, and, and you know, and, and really, to be quite honest, it was nothing different than what we give our participants now. You know, you need a quality CPA who can help you build out and develop your financial infrastructure. You need a lawyer because I, I had no idea the extent of the legal um, um, understanding that's required in nonprofit arenas as you start thinking about partnerships and, and, and how do you meet grant obligations and, and let alone if you're submitting applications for any type of federal opportunities and insurance. And, yes. you know, we were able to bring you in as a fundraising consultant and provide our board with some guidance just in terms of how to fundraise. I think all of those things and bringing in those subject matter experts are imperative and, and people shouldn't in particular, as you kind of move up and grow your nonprofit organization, the overabundance of responsibility can easily overwhelm you. And so it's important to kind of tag you know, or link into those type of subject matter experts who can provide you with the guidance and the type of support that you need to grow your organization. Such a good point. And you hit the big three that I often use that every nonprofit leader, I think, has to have both internal and maybe outside of the staff that financial, legal, yes. and I might add HR, human resources, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you've had to juggle all three. Yes. Yes. And and, and do so uh, again with the, with the team of people that I kind of brought together that have been able to assist me in doing that. Because, you know, there's a difference between having someone who's an accountant and having a bookkeeper relative to having a CPA who can provide the guidance with respect to audits and what have you that are so important to, again, the credibility of us as an organization. Yeah, that's a great point. There's a strategic level of accounting, isn't there? Yes. Not that we yes. don't need our good bookkeeping as well, but yeah, absolutely. especially as you were venturing out into those partnerships and other complexities. And I guess it leads to my next question too, Manuel, of as a startup, when you were in that role, how did you approach strategic planning? You know, it's hard. You're just thinking about the next month, but I think right. at the same time, you still had a vision for further down the right. road. So how, how did you approach strategic planning? And, and I think that that was, that's an excellent point, um, Patton, because when, when, when you start out, everything is about one, if you have payroll, how about meet payroll next month? And, and, and so the grind in that space is real, but I think that that's where the value of your board really comes into play. Because one of the things that we would do at every board meeting, we always had a line item on our agenda for the board meeting is, you know, strategic development. So every board meeting, we would spend time on either assessing what the strategic plan is or assessing the progress that we've made with respect to the, the strategic plan itself. And so it's always about how do we improve the strategic plan or how, how are we meeting the goals as they're defined in the strategic plan? And that kind of kept us on pace with really kind of staying focused in, in terms of the big picture and the vision of the organization on the board level, which certainly trickled down to us as staff members and how do we met the day-to-day -day obligations of the organization while at the same time moving in the direction that I think we were all trying to drive the bus. Yeah, well, and let me ask you a tactical question along those exact lines. That, and I know you have different time horizons you have to pay attention to, literally the daily, <laughs> the monthly, uh, but right. annual. Do you generally look kind of one year out, three years out, five years out, or in your planning tools? Is there a certain time horizon you're particularly focused? And well, Pat, I would say I've been, you know, blessed to kind of grow Aspire in the way that we've grown it. So now we're in a space from a financial standpoint, we create our, our um, business plan, if you will, for the next year, kind of based on the capital that we've raised from the previous year. So I, I, we do an assessment of where we are financially um, at the end of the fiscal year. And then based on the, the funds that we either have committed or and in the bank already, we then develop our quote unquote strategic plan for the next year. Nice. And so with that then allows for, you know, us to, to continue to move forward with our three to five year plan, but we're always open to making pivots as, you know, COVID and, yes. and all of other life issues present themselves and there's a need to adjust. 
we make sure that we maintain the flexibility to be able to do that because nimbleness for organization our size is one of our greatest uh, strengths. Absolutely. And so that annual focus and annual review, if you will, keeps you nimble so that you can move toward that longer term three to five year goal, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that it's imperative to have those three to five year plans, but to, 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 to try and develop and cultivate the financial resources to support the plan. Because we have a, a, a great plan, but without the financial support to achieve those goals, that plan unfortunately becomes mute in a lot of instances. Yeah, that's such a good point. And it can collapse on itself, can't it? And, yes, and yes. Okay to be uh, aspirational in your goals, but you have kind of the foundation of that annual financial review to keep everything right. solid. And, 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 and I think that the two are really integrated in the sense of, you know, for the financial growth and responsibility really does fall on, I wouldn't say fall on you as the CEO exclusively, but at the end of the day, we're all fund development leaders. And to the extent that we can be on top of and really cognizant of where those opportunities to raise money really are, the better we are in position to achieve those uh, three to five year goals for the organization. Well, that's a perfect segue to the fundraising question, which many of our nonprofit friends, some love it, some hate it, but it's a reality that we have to raise funds and in the big chair is the CEO, yes. you have to do that. Do you tell me about how you consciously evaluate kind of your fundraising role? Is it kind of a, you see it as a certain percentage of your time has to be in fundraising or how do you strategically orient yourself around that important role? So, yes, I do. I, and I think about it in terms of, you know, percentages, as, as you articulated, uh, Patton, you know, so I, I, I'm aware that at least up, at least 40 percent of my time really needs to be dedicated to fundraising and, and fundraising in the sense of, you know, I think when people say they're co- uncomfortable and don't like fundraising, it's the ask that people don't like. Right. I think for me, um, I feel like if I really cultivated the relationship in the way that I think is imperative to cultivate relationships, then the ask is almost secondary or or at least it's expected. And so um, I think part of it is, you know, there's a natural inclination to want to rush the ask, you know, and I prefer to ask too late than to ask too early. Right. And I try and approach, you know, the cultivation of of our, you know, donor base, be it individual donors, the cultivation of our corporate and financial sponsors. uh, And just to kind of think about, you know, if I were them, what is it that I would be looking for? And I go back to the thing that I mentioned before, which is really about do I feel that I've established significant and relevant credibility with this particular donor? And and if I haven't, then it's probably too soon for me to ask for financial contribution. And if the answer is yes, I want to ensure, I want to be sure that they feel the same way. So I might even ask, you know, well, how do you feel about the organization? How do you feel about what you've learned based on what you've seen and what you've read? And I make sure that I I try and, and position my board members as well as the potential donor or corporate sponsor to have met at least one of my board members. So nice. that they can glean some insight from them as well. And I think that that kind of has served me well. And I think that that was, to be honest, that was one of the hardest things for me to grasp when I first launched Aspire is to really understand that there is, you know, and you do a great job of, of, of talking through the fund development cycle. Right, uh, but right. going from an understanding the fund, uh, that, that, that fundraising cycle that is probably really a year or two away from the time you meet someone by, by before you receive funding from someone. That's such a and good so point. Yep. It's, it's that challenge of, you know, how do I meet my day-to-day responsibilities from a financial standpoint in running the organization while at the same time building this pipeline of resources that I know I'm going to need that will take a year or two before we reap any of the benefits. That's again, a great point. And it's, it's hard not to be impatient, right? As a, yes. as a startup <laughs> in particular, you need the money. Right. Right. And, right. And you you know you have a good cause, but it sounds like you've kind of also tempered that impatience we feel because you know in the long run you're going to get more. 
Right, right. And 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 Pat, and I will say I have been impatient and, and people <laughs> <laughs> quite a few times. Um, uh, but but to your point, yeah, it has served me well in terms of being able to because not only do people feel like again that they belong or are connected to you uh, and the organization, but you want as I as I like to say, I want co-conspirers. I want people to not only buy in and to give, but their, their financial resources, but I need your time and I need you to feel comfortable enough to open up your Rolodex to say, you know what, I give to this organization. Emmanuel, you know, what? I have two or three other friends that I think would be just as interested because to me, that, that's really the critical piece of the relationship is not only are you willing to give, but you're also willing to suggest to your friends or recommend to your friends that they should also give, given the impact of the work that they know that we are having. That's a great criteria to keep in mind. And I think you've embodied that in your board recruitment because you yes. have indeed found people, right, that not only support you, but are, are comfortable ambassadors to help you absolutely. spread the word even more. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't say it better, Pat. And th having those community ambassadors is, is critical to your success as a nonprofit leader. All right. Well, let me jump to another one that you've wrestled with. I know it's a crowded space in the nonprofit marketing communications, uh, lots of noise, lots of social media channels. So how do you approach getting the word out, you know, spreading the word about what Aspire is trying to do with, you know, often limited resources and yet you still want more people to know? If there was one nugget that I could leave uh, to this audience, I would certainly want to convey that one of the shortcomings of nonprofit organizations is that we don't market well. We don't tell our stories enough. Yep. And I know social media to a certain extent has, has, has changed that, but I think that it is impaired. I know a lot of great nonprofit organizations doing amazing work. Nobody knows about it. Right. And so one of the things that we did, um, and, you know, kind of going back to how we built out our staff is, you know, I certainly wanted to bring in a, a marketing person to assist us and direct us in terms of a marketing strategy. You know, I, I, having a marketing plan is great, but I knew I wanted this organization to have a marketing strategy and to really understand our target market, who were we trying to reach and how are we going to reach them? And, and really kind of thinking through that process. And I think more nonprofits need to really focus on their marketing because they're already doing great work. And I think if, if, if more people knew about the great work that they were doing, the, the funding would come, the participants would be aware, and the community at large, would, they would garner community support through the process. And so we've been intentional really around how do we market our services? How do we share our, our success stories? How do we even talk about the things that are not going as well? And I think our focus on uh, those dynamics with respect to our marketing strategy has served us well and has been a big part of why we have kind of been able to grow at the rate that we've been able to grow. Such a good point, Manuel, and advice for our listeners that maybe put marketing communications to the side, you know, as a back burner, yes. nice to have idea. And you're saying you, you should literally lead with it for everything Absolutely. else. Right. Because if people don't know you exist, people I can't find you, nor, pe nor can people give to your um, mission and vision. And so we find it imperative. And, and a lot of people will come to us and say, oh, I saw you in a commercial or manual. I heard about Aspire and I even get, you know, oh, so you're, you're you're the guys with the A because Aspire, <laughs> we have this A as our logo. Right, right. I've seen that logo. And, you know, it's just that um, that that insight that people have or, or what people have garnered from seeing you or hearing about you either from someone else or through social media channels that really kind of lead to further conversations because what our social uh, as well as our marketing strategy does it kind of plants the seed and once the seed is planted then it allows me to have a much easier conversation as we transition from what you what you perceive aspire to be to what it actually is because that's usually the question I heard about Aspire. Now, what do y'all do? And yeah, then that's right. when I know that there is at least an interest. Well, and I can't wait. Of course, the show notes of this episode will lift up your website and uh, many of the wonderful kind of social media tools you're using to help tell your story, which I know will benefit listeners who need to be thinking about exactly that. Uh, 
Manuel, tons of advice here, but I want to ask one more because you've been such a good example of a lifelong learner. And mm-hmm. I wonder, how do you take care of yourself? How do you keep learning? Because you and I both have friends that frankly feel like they're burning out. And so <laughs> what do you do to keep from burning out and maintain the energy you still bring to aspire? Mm-hmm. I think that it's important for anyone to just have an avenue to decompress. And, and one of my, my, my strategies of decompressing is, is yoga. And I picked up cycling during COVID. So Pat, I'm, I'm certainly a very novice cyclist. And I'm <laughs> going to emphasize very. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but just having and allowing for that window to decompress. And, you know, it's so easily uh, because we're so passionate about the work that we do to live it, to breathe it, to eat it, to be so integrated into your life that all of your friends are very aware of what you do and all you want to do is talk about it and what have you. But it's a good time. It's a good practice to really take some time to decompress and let it go. And, and you know, maybe go for a hike in the woods or and it gives me an opportunity to brainstorm. Yep. And I'll tell you another part that I've added, and I actually got this from a, from a recommendation or as a result of a recommendation from another nonprofit leader. And he said, man, you take a walk at least three times a week. Interesting. You know, so I, that, that's something that I do at least three times a week, 30 minute walk just by myself, and, you know, I have the best ideas and I remember all kind of stuff I've forgotten, you know, just <laughs> along the way. And it's not because I'm thinking about it. It's just because I freed my mind and I'm just away from everything. And I realized that there's so much more to life than what we do, even though what we do is an important part of our lives. Such good advice. And you're right. It's so easy to get ourselves stuck in the constant volume of media and data and everything else, your mind doesn't have a chance to rest. And it sounds right. like your best ideas might be because while you're resting. Exactly. <laughs> and so good advice. Uh, I need to ponder that myself. Uh, so for you, it's getting on the bike or getting on the trail. Either way, right, though, right. it keeps you sane, doesn't it? Yes, yes. It keeps you balanced. Right. Um, because because I think that that's always the fear is that, you know, I think burnout is a is partly a product of not having much balance. Yes. Well, Manuel, I've got a dozen good ideas and pieces of advice from you. This is fantastic. And I know our listeners will apply and can apply so much of this. You know, I guess the kind of final question that comes to my mind is it, and I bet you get this now. Someone says, Manuel, wow, I'm thinking about going down a path like you did to lead or start a nonprofit. What advice do you have for someone who poses that kind of question? Um, I would I would suggest that the first do an assessment of yourself. Um, really understand the not try try to develop an understanding of the nonprofit space in general. Um, have a conversation with your family and be sure that, that they are in agreement with you. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, but I think the most important part uh, or, or the, 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 the fourth assessment I would recommend is certainly an assessment of your relationships. Because, again, I think our business is all relational. Yes. And really understand, you know, who do you know or who do you have established organic relationships with um, and how, how might they be able to assist you? And then and then share with them your idea. Look, I'm thinking about starting a nonprofit that does this. What do you think? Uh, and, and take their insight and their perspective to heart. You know, and, and it shouldn't be one that your decision whether or not you should move into the nonprofit space is based on what they say, right. but certainly internalize it and think through it and apply it where you think it best fits. And I think really having that clarity around your relationships, uh, what you want to do. And, and an understanding of your personal um, dynamics as well as your family dynamics are all part of that decision-making process that one should go through as they consider moving into the nonprofit arena. It's fantastic advice, Manuel. Uh, I applaud your self-awareness and, and your self-assessment idea. But I, the nuance there you add is it is a family commitment, isn't it? Yes. So everybody needs to be involved before you race off to your quote good idea. (laughs) If the family and friends, yeah. Absolutely. Especially if you're just starting one. Because again, the lead time between, you know, you garnering funding to support your nonprofit might be up to, you know, six to 12 months away. 
that's going to be stressful perhaps yes. for everybody yes. in, in the family. So, well, great advice, Manuel. Uh, again, throughout this conversation, as you know, I ask each of my guests to consider a book recommendation. Has, has there been a book that's been meaningful to you or you might recommend to others on this nonprofit path? Absolutely. And I will reiterate, and I know, you know, Patton, don't tell him this, but the one book that has really served me well, and, and as you spoke of earlier, you had Ronnie Bryan as a guest. <laughs> right. His book is, is phenomenal. Uh, Driving from the Backseat, Tips for Surviving as a Nonprofit CEO. And, you know, of course, you know, I, he's preached that the gospel, like he talks about it like it's the gospel. But <laughs> right. he, he, he shared and, and we've talked about a lot of different chapters in the book. And it really helped me in understanding specifically that relationship between me as a CEO and my board of directors and how to really cultivate and build those relationships in such a way that is mutually beneficial and one that it wears symbiotic, where they understand the needs of our the organization, as well as I understand their needs from a governance standpoint and being sure that that constant line of communication remains open and productive for both parties. Wonderfully put. Delighted to lift up both Ronnie's book and his episode. So for the show notes of this episode, I will encourage our listeners to check out exactly what you and I are talking about. Now, we don't want Ronnie to get too big of a head around no, this, do no. we? But, if he um, can get bigger. But. <laughs> but you are right, Manuel. He has written a wonderful and practical book to guide yes. nonprofit leaders. So I'm delighted to lift it up as part of your episode. And again, delighted to lift up the great work you're doing. In fact, Manuel, where can people find out more about you and the great things you're doing through Aspire Community Capital? Absolutely. And people can join us, um, you know, as I'd like to say, join the Aspire family by visiting our website at aspirecommunitycapital.org, uh, or they can visit visit us on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook uh, by following at Aspire Community Capital. Wonderful. Manuel, thank you so much for joining me on the path. All right. It's a pleasure to be here, Pat, and this has been a pleasure and an honor. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Manuel as much as I did. He came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey as a nonprofit leader or perhaps enhance your organization's current strategy. Don't forget to check out the show notes. This is episode number 130. They're available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Manuel. You can find out more about Aspire Community Capital and the great work it's doing in the Charlotte community. As always... Thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Just go to the podcast page, the new and improved podcast page at patmcdowell.com, and you'll see the follow button. That's what they call it now. It's the follow button, which translates to subscribe. And you can link to any of the primary podcast platforms that is your preference. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing each month. You know what? If you like this episode, make sure you click on the Episodes button at the top of the podcast page. And you can scroll through thumbnails of all of our previous episodes, including manuals, number 130, and the one he referenced, Ronnie Bryant, episode number 23, another good one that you may want to check out. Thanks, as always, for what you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.